Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Well, hello. It's the Monday Scramble. We are back from the weekend. We've got a lot of stories to tell you. A little bit later in the show, we'll tell you a story about the Kennedy assassination. Uh, believe it or not, not all of the documents, almost 55, do I have that right, 55 years later, uh, have made their way out to the public. But there's sort of a last tranche of them that um, may become available very soon. We'll explain all that to you with a journalist who has become a specialist in the Kennedy assassination. But before we do that, you know, disasters have a way of captivating our attention for a few days, maybe four or five days. Uh, disasters rarely go on for merely three or four or five days. They go on for a long time, a long time after the media spotlight leaves them. A- and I think this is especially true in the case of Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico um, had a whole lot of problems which predated the arrival uh, of Maria, which, first of all, made it easier for Maria, an incredibly powerful storm, to hurt this island and also made it incredibly hard for Puerto Rico to rebuild and reconnect in ways that uh, Houston and Florida may have been able to do quite a bit faster. So um, with all of that in mind, we have sent uh, two excellent uh, and highly prized WNPR uh, reporters to Puerto Rico, Jeff Cohen, uh, news director at WNPR, and of course, ace newsman, uh, and Ryan Karen King, photojournalist at WNPR and the New England News Collaborative. Uh, they've been there, uh, they, w- how they were there for about a, about a week. About a week. About a week. They're back now. We're happy to have them back, and we are going to uh, pick their brains uh, right now uh, about what they saw there. I'm sure you heard some of the terrific reporting that they've done. There's more reporting in the pipeline on the way, too, based on stories they collected, audio they collected, um, uh, photographs and video that Ryan collected. So, um, Jeff, I'm going to ask you uh, just to begin. um, I think a lot of our impressions of how Puerto Rico is kind of run through San Juan, which is uh, the the capital and and by far the most populous area uh, of Puerto Rico. But it's not the whole island. You guys sort of really went out to the whole island. So how did things look out there? Uh, so uh, there are a few answers. One, even San Juan was, I mean, old San Juan flooded twice while we were there. Mm-hmm. Um, this, the streetlights were by and large not functioning. Mm. Um, the Throughout uh, the highways around old San Juan, trees were down. Debris had been cleared, but uh, the wind damage was obvious. But then when you left San Juan, uh, which was not difficult, the roads were clear, but we went throughout the island in all four directions. Well, south from San Juan, I suppose, and go north. Um, and uh, there was a lot. Uh, it was exceptionally devastated. The further east you went, the, one thing we saw a lot of were trees stripped bare of their leaves. You could see through the trees when you couldn't have seen through them before. Dense forests were now just sticks standing up. Uh, we were in places in the center of the island in the mountain ranges where uh, this is sort of northeast of Maricao, where uh, if you're, you know, and, and it, when it snows in Connecticut, the plows come through and they push all the snow to the side. Well, what we saw were mudslides, bright, bright, sort of rich orange red mud uh, that eventually, that was at some point across the road and had clearly been plowed out of the way with big sort of diggers. And all the roadsides uh, in this area that we were in were had huge mounds of red, red mud collected on the side. 
we saw just a devastated island, but we also saw a lot of people uh, celebrating. Uh, we saw we were there on Saturday night, and there was we saw a, a few, you know there's live music um, at random bars and towns that we passed through. There were people uh, at cafes having a good time. So it is a it is on the one hand a month after a disaster, and on the other hand, people cannot only live the disaster. Well, Ryan, you know this narrative that a lot of people have stuck in their heads is. Um, they had a big storm, uh, and now they're rebuilding. Uh, I think one of the things people miss is it rains a lot in Puerto Rico at this time, uh, time of year. They had a big storm, and they're trying to rebuild, and it keeps raining, right? Right. Um, it, it, and it also seems like um, one of the themes uh, that we observed there was contrast. We are standing in this bakery in this, this um, very small town in the mountains of Puerto Rico, um, waiting for a refugee clinic to, to get going. Um, now, outside of the bakery, there are downed power lines, um, the same sort of situation where um, you saw uh, trees stripped of leaves. Um, but on, on, the, on the inside, uh, people were um, eating food and, and drinking clean water, um, and, um, and there was a generator um, and, and the spirits were lively. The theme we saw constantly was contrast. The, the, the trees were stripped of their leaves, but there was new growth. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a, that's a nice metaphor. Well, I, I, and I want to come back to that at the end, too, because I, I think there is a lot of truth to that uh, as well. Well, I, I think, I mean, a lot of people have heard um, how your uh, reporting sounded. But for those who haven't, let's uh, hear a little bit of it. Uh, Jeff, uh, you want to set up this clip about the so-called water dogs? Sure. So uh, before we went down, we worked hard to make sure that when we got there, we'd have uh, no free time. Uh, <laughs> and uh, we we were able to connect with a group of veterans, largely veterans, and but some volunteers who were not veterans from Connecticut, uh, who were, except for one person, all Puerto Rican, uh, and who went to the island just to try and help. Uh, and what they did was they, they arranged to, to, they bought through a GoFundMe account, I believe, uh, a water purification system, and uh, it can clear 250 gallons of water and make them pure and filtered in about an hour. And so we joined up with them on a rainy day in a, uh, in a town outside of Salinas, uh, Puerto Rico, and we have some tape from that. We've been sitting on a couch on the sidelines waiting for things to get better. Needle really hasn't moved that much. We thought we could maybe do some help and do some good and help support what the efforts are. That's Ray Guasp. He's a Connecticut resident and a former Marine. I'm amazed at uh, how many people have done stuff like that or done comparable things um, uh, in terms of water filtration. I also I heard from a guy who's uh, launched a, um, a crowdsourcing site. It's up on my Facebook page right now. Who is uh, uh, also from I think from around here. Mm. Uh, they, they have these things called life straws. You can even buy them at REI. They're these things basically where you could you put them to your mouth and you, they'll filter. For a while, anyway, I think they'll filter like a thousand gallons total of of water and pull out bacteria and stuff like that. He's um, shipping a lot of those down to Puerto Rico and trying to ship even more. So people are kind of doing that. You know, Ryan. On the one hand, we have these incredible stories of these people who just kind of appoint themselves uh, as volunteers and go down and do these things and manage their resources the best that they can. But as you guys traveled into the island and around the outside of the island, were you running into a lot of people who just kind of hadn't really seen any official form of help coming from the mainland? Uh, From what it appeared, um, oftentimes we were the only people they had seen. Mm -hmm. Um, 
coming from either the San Juan area or from um, uh, uh, the relief effort. We weren't with the relief effort, but oftentimes we were uh, with people bringing supplies. Um, uh, we trailed one Hartford resident, Luis Coto. Oh, actually, he's not from Hartford now, but he was a former Hartford city councilman. Um, he's in Cambridge, Mass. right now. Um, but he traveled to Puerto Rico with about um, $10,000 worth of supplies to distribute um, to people who had connections back on the mainland. Um, and um, when we were traveling with him, um, we uh, often came across people who said, wow, you were the first people we had seen with supplies. This was almost four weeks out from the hurricane, and they were still without clean drinking water. And the supplies that Luis was were, were giving... Um, the water filters and solar lamps, you know, they, these were a, a great thing for them to receive, um, but didn't necessarily address every single need. So they were still waiting at that point. Some of this stuff has to do with logistics. And sort of, I mean, it, it's I think it'll take years of studying to figure out why the the resources, the federal resources available didn't map a little bit more precisely onto the needs, as Ryan is saying. Um, but some of it just does seem to be sort of poor communication. Communication's down there anyway. Right. You know, the story he was telling before, uh, Jeff, uh, about the bakery, I think that's the day that you guys saw a little bit of that um, inability to coordinate relief with need. That's right. And I don't know that it necessarily has to do with communication. I think there uh, some local some people who are Puerto Rican were pointing to that as incompetence, not not There's not, always that. There's always that. And this was a situation, this is a story we're working on for the early this week where we went a- along with a group of medical professionals, two physicians, some psychologists and nurses and students uh, to a shelter in a town called Maricao and they, when they were when they were to have arrived, they were supposed to have a setup there, ready to meet people, and for them to be, have people to meet and people to assess and people to sort of assess their basic needs. And the people weren't there, and the people really about five or six people got got seen, um, and the people who were supposed to come from other shelters just didn't show up, and it was extremely <laughs> frustrating uh, for for uh, for one of the people who was there. Her name was uh, Blanca Ortiz, and uh, we have some tape for her also. Many people here were under the illusion that we were like a first world country. And now they see we are not, that we are a poor country, that we are in really bad shape, and how fragile our infrastructure, our economy is. Now they're seeing that. So that's Blanca Ortiz. She's a, a, a professor of psychology at the University of, of Puerto Rico. Um, you know, to that point about the fragile in- infrastructure, I think, Ryan, it's hard for people here to picture what's going on there. What you had uh, was a utility system that was not only wobbly and fragile before it got this knockout blow from Maria. It's also, I believe, PREPA had filed for bankruptcy. Um, and so what you've got is you try the difference between rebuilding in Puerto Rico and rebuilding in Florida or Houston, to me, is the difference between trying to rebuild a, a dollhouse that was made out of toothpicks and a dollhouse that was made out of Legos. The the one that you're trying to rebuild out of toothpicks in, in, is not only harder to rebuild, but it keeps falling apart while you're rebuilding it, right? You saw a lot of power lines that just weren't, weren't yeah. staying up, right? Yeah, it, it was pretty remarkable. We were a- able to travel the island pretty easily. The roads had been cleared by that point, as Jeff had mentioned. Um, but as we were driving these roads, um, it was... Om- it was um, it's so common to see 
power lines and telephone poles precariously hanging over where we were driving. Um, it didn't like it, you know it didn't stop people from driving under them. Um, didn't stop us from driving under them, but uh, that was pretty much how you had to get around. And it, it you know again we were four weeks out and still um, a lot of the the infrastructure um, the the electrical infrastructure. It looked like it was heavily damaged, if not touched. Yeah, and I don't. We're only two guys with four eyes wandering around a big island, right? So to to say that we didn't see something doesn't mean something wasn't happening. But we didn't see anybody at all doing any electrical line work. The one thing we did, we we think we may have seen was when when we were way up on top of a mountain in the town of Umakao, and there were some high transmission lines. We did see a helicopter. What it looked to have been surveying, videoing the the, the high the high power lines. But other than that, we don't think we saw a whole lot. Well, I mean, we even just know from watching the percentages go up and then go back down again. At one point, I think the percent uh, of restoration got to 17 percent and then dropped to nine because as they're trying to put this stuff back together, there's line breaks in other places and just problems that are happening because this thing is made to a certain degree out of matchsticks, right? It just it, it isn't. Right. You know, and there's no such thing as an underground utility, I don't think. I mean, you know, that's one of the things you do in storm-prone areas, obviously, is underground your power lines. I'm sure there's nowhere in Puerto Rico that has that. No, and, and so it gets to the point of yeah, uh, when we were – that tape you heard before from Blanca Ortiz, we were in a cafe. And that's, we went to this cafe because none of the, the refugees from the clinic were there to be seen. Uh, and and her, what she says is, look, if we're going to recover from this – it's not going to be because of the government mm-hmm. uh, or the electrical companies, right? It's going to be because of civil civil society, people doing their own thing. So how is it that we're in the town of Maricao, uh, in the really one of the, I think it's like the second smallest town on the island, um, and there's a bakery open serving pastries and pizza mm-hmm. and coffee. And Well, they have a cistern. M- mean, but mind you, their roof was heavily damaged. Yeah. And we're not talking a fancy roof. Uh, they had a cistern, they had a generator, and they were opening and they were doing it on their own. Right. Uh, and we're going to go to a break here and, and then come back with some more stories about all this. Uh, you and I have been talking about this a bit before you headed down there. One of the things I've been thinking a lot about is cisterns. Cisterns are a very typical way of supplying water in places like this uh, island, countries that have a lot of heavy rain and then not much rain for other parts of the season. And I mean, there's a lot of other reasons for cisterns. And they aren't, I mean, cisterns basically it's sort of a big pit that's kind of underneath your house typically that your roof drains into. But it's a way to collect water, and it's actually a relatively clean way to collect water. And if you can do anything else afterwards, like boil it or anything like that, so much the better. And I feel, you know, I mean, they're going to probably have to go back to building houses with cisterns, right? I mean, because they have this this water system that is kind of not working for them right now. I don't know the, I mean, I'm guessing um, there are a lot of people who have cisterns just as a, as a matter oh, yeah. of course, yep. um, and you see them, you see them out. So I think that's uh, that is not going to be an uncommon solution. Right. All right. We're going to take a break. Uh, we're going to talk more to Jeff Cohen and Ryan Karen King, who are back from reporting in Puerto Rico. After this. All right, we're back. Um, Our final segment today will have to do with the archived materials uh, involving the Kennedy assassination, materials that researchers can't get to right now, but may be able to. Uh, But right now we're talking about Puerto Rico uh, with uh, two of our fine journalists here. Ace Newsman Jeff Cohen is the news director at WNPR. Ryan Karen King, photojournalist at WNPR and the New England News Collaborative. Um, Now, um, 
I think one of the, sto- I mean, human stories, stories that kind of have a human scale to them, have a way of getting to people. You know, you can talk about a thousand people with a problem, or you can talk about, talk about one person with a problem. A lot of times the one person is something that they can really relate to. Uh, Jeff, I know, I think on the flight down, was mm-hmm. it that you discovered this guy uh, who was uh, in an unusual position? And um, we should also say that another part of the Puerto Rico story, a lot of it's about getting aid, relief, and rebuilding to the island. There's this whole other second story about just getting people off the island. The- Right, and and I should also let's if if I could just sure. uh, back up for a quick second and say, well, why is a station in Connecticut telling us telling a series of stories about Puerto Rico at all, right? Yeah. And it's important to know from where we sit in the news department, this is a local story for us. This is there are roughly three hundred thousand people from Puerto Rico uh, with Puerto Rican ties living in Connecticut. That's eight or nine percent of our population. There is a lot of uh, you know travel back and forth very regularly. There are people we did not have to work hard. At all, mm. uh, or work work at all, to find people who had Connecticut ties. We stumbled across people from New Haven and Bridgeport and Holyoke. Um, you know, so this is a story for us. Um, then, so on the plane, we were sitting there, and a woman in front of us. This is, I don't think you probably know this part of the story. The woman in the row in front of us actually starts having a respiratory. Oh attack. no, that's in your report. It's in the report. Okay. okay, she starts having a respiratory attack, and then this guy uh, turns around and starts helping her, and very generously and calming her down in Spanish, and you know, sort of trying to calm her and uh, it was probably driven in part by her anxiety he starts whipping out his his inhalers and giving her inhaler a couple different kinds of inhalers some EMTs come they were on they were from Massachusetts they help uh, settle her down a bit um, and then I was like well who's this guy mm-hmm. uh, seemed like a nice enough guy and uh, no time like the present to start reporting so I went up to him on the plane and asked him a little bit about a story his name was Guillermo Clas. Uh, he is lives in Hartford. Uh, he has two sons, two teenage sons, who live uh, in uh, who lived until today in a town called Florida in Puerto Rico. Uh, and he was going down to get them. I had to sell my car to to buy the plane tickets. I had to sell my vehicle if I could buy the plane tickets, and I have money in my pocket so I could get them out of Puerto Rico. And that doesn't bother me, because that's what you gotta do as a father. So we were there. We were there when uh, he got off the plane and he reunited with his sons. He hadn't seen them in five years. In part, he, they they live with their mother. He and his uh, he and his Guillermo and his uh, and the, the boy's mother are not together. They have separate families now. And he uh, hadn't seen them in a while. And part of the reason was, you know, he uh, he ha- he's unable to work. And you know, the, the idea that he had to sell his car to raise the pl- to the money to buy the plane tickets uh, spoke volumes. Um, it was also, I, I know that you've said that even just based on the reporting that you've gotten out so far, and there is, as you've been saying, more to come, people are just saying, well, what can I do? What can I do to help that guy? What can I help? Right. Right? In other words, people are just responding that way, right? We've gotten a lot of offers, which, you know, we remove ourselves from that process. We, we connect people who want to be connected. But people offered, you know, I sold my truck. I have my old truck. Does he want my truck? I'll buy him a new car. Here's seventeen hundred dollars, uh, and it's great. In fact, we tried to hook up with him in Flor in Florida in the town, uh, and he said, you know, come find me. Uh, just drive up in the town and tell him you're looking for Guillermo Clas. He's the father of William and Joy Mark Clas. And so we <laughs> rolled in one night because you can't call, right? Yeah, the cell right. phones don't work. We rolled in one night with the windows down. We, it was like dusk, and we're just sort of driving around and rolling down the windows, and we're like, hey, do you know? And we're like, yeah. We tried, like, we literally asked like five people, <laughs> and then we're like, it's getting dark, and it doesn't get any. You know, it's pretty dark, so we headed out of town. Although, I mean, that 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 story it speaks to a couple of different things, including the fact that, uh, and you and I both have spent time down there, Jeff. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, 
Puerto Rican people are often great improvisers, you know, and there's a lot of ways in which they can sort of the, things get figured out kind of informally um, and maybe without every single piece of paperwork done or every. And so tell the story of the woman who basically just moved. Uh, yeah. Well, it's funny you say that because the word she used is improvise. Right. Uh, this is a woman who was in Maricao. At, at, uh, she lived on a hillside in a, in a two-toned house, red-yellow house with a tin roof, and with her sons, I think three sons and her husband. And um, the roof, half of the roof blew off in the storm. And um, three days later, it was raining in her home. And she decided to go down the hill to the school, which would later turn into a, like a, a shelter. Uh, it wasn't being used as a school anymore. Uh, and she and her husband were able to break into one of the rooms, uh, that's sort of a freestanding room, and and it, she brought all their stuff down, removed her family with her beds, a little two burner like camping stove, brought it all there, big buckets of water, collecting water, and they made they improvised to your point and and made a new home. She's like, what? what she said that she she went to the mayor afterwards, and was just like, just so you know, I'm in the school, uh, and he was fine with it. Right. And I, are they doing something more with the school now? Now it's being turned into sort of like a regional um, refugee shelter for people who've lost their homes or who are otherwise homeless. And uh, it, it's interesting to note these are refugees all from within, and they call themselves refugees, uh, all from within the town of Maricao. But that part of Puerto Rico is so dense and so mountainous and so curvy that the other sh- another shelter wasn't more than an hour away. Mm-hmm. You can drive an hour right. and still be in the same town because it is that windy. Right, I think that's something people don't get about Puerto Rico. They think it's uh, um, a Caribbean island like the other Caribbean islands they've seen. It's sort of a mountain, basically. Mm. And roughly the same size of Connecticut. Right, but physically the same size of Connecticut, roughly the same population as Connecticut. If it were a state, it would be roughly the 30th largest state. In other words, there would be 20 other states that are smaller. I always say this to people. If Puerto Rico were a state... It would be roughly the size of Connecticut, 30th largest. It would have two U.S. senators and either four or five members of Congress, which means that, like, everything would change in Washington, too, if Puerto Rico were a state. Um, you know, Ryan, it's also a place of incredible contrast, as tends to be the case when you deal with poverty. There was one uh, moment where this wall that you encountered was very symbolic of that. Uh, tell that story. Uh, so uh, we were in uh, the the eastern side of the island, Umacao, and we were following um, a, a resident who had connections there. He had grown up. Um, part of his childhood was spent in this resort town. Um, he now lives in San Juan. Um, and he was telling us that San Juan, compared to Umacao right now, looks like Disneyland. Um, so every day he drives to Umacao um, and brings supplies, uh, tries to connect people with their folks back on the mainland. Um, and he brought us to this street that overlooked the resort community that he grew up in. Um, and the, the, the disparity between that resort um, um, and uh, where we were standing um, was pretty striking because we were talking to people who lived in the town that surrounded that resort. And it was a hot day. Um, we were all sweating. Um, you know, there was a one man holding... Um, an umbrella over his, uh, what seemed to be his elderly neighbor. Um, um, and they were telling us we need water. Um, there is a river nearby, but we can't drink from it. It's not clean. Um, we need water to drink. We need water to bathe our elderly who are bedridden so they don't get bed sores. Um, and, and 
nearby there was um, this resort and it had a three foot wall, more of a symbolic wall than anything. Um, and we went into this resort um, to to look around. And um, while there was damage from the hurricane to the buildings, um, to the trees, because that's where the hurricane first touched down on this part of the island, um, it looked like life was pretty lively there. There, there were people. There was a woman washing her truck. Uh, um, we went to a restaurant where there was a bathroom with air conditioning. Out of all things, um, so that that was a, a a pretty striking comparison. Right. So on the other side, people are hot and sweaty, and they don't have potable water in That's the right. same town. Yeah. Um, th- to that point, uh, we have uh, a man, I think, philosophizing a little bit about that. that I think his name may have been Luis Colon. Luis Colon. Yeah. Tell you want to set this uh, this slip up here? Sure. Luis joined us in this cafe as we were all waiting for the refugees to never arrive. And uh, he's a, a taxi driver in San Juan, a dad, and he's also a, st- a student in psychology. And we were talking about uh, the effect of the storm and how uh, it has... Um, well, I'm not going to spoil it, but it's it's done a lot of things to help people in Puerto Rico see their island differently. Now we can see through the trees, stuff that we didn't see before. So now we see the necessity that we didn't see before because we were in our comfort zone, you know, not aware of the necessities of other towns and other people. And, and that's what is shocking everywhere you go. Um, you know, Ryan, I think earlier you used kind of a similar metaphor to talk about this, that um, the stripping away of vegetation um, revealed a lot of things that were basically hidden even from other people in Puerto Rico. Yeah. And actually one. So we, we heard uh, Luis here sort of describe it as, you know, it's revealing all these issues um, that we were sort we were in our comfort zone and um, not really seeing. And now we can see through the trees and now we can see. You know, all the problems with our infrastructure, the problems that we're not addressing in, in this situation, um, you know, the mental health of, of um, the, the residents here. Um, but we also heard an, another uh, uh, a comparison or um, uh, analogy using the, the stripping away of the trees. We were standing um, back in Umacao on the top of one of the town's highest peaks um, under what was once um, a lush oasis where they would hold festivals um, and um, it was, uh, you know, a part where, a part of town where people would gather because it was just so beautiful, so high up um, with these um, broad vistas. Now, standing up there, um, it looked like a wasteland from the top of that peak. And on the top of that peak, it was no longer shaded as it once was, uh, as the folks told us there. Um, but one of the, the women who, uh, who uh, Rosalina, uh, her name was Rosalina, and she told us that um, she was standing there and she told us that um, despite all of this, despite the fact that the, the trees are now stripped of their leaves um, and you know, there's these vast barren wastelands of trees, uh, we can now see our neighbors. That's what she said. We can see where they live and it brings us together. Um, on the other hand, I think there are some ways in which as this crisis stretches on, and it's not going to be over in November or December, it's going to go on, and the power crisis will probably go on for another six months. Um, uh, other aspects of the crisis will go on considerably longer than that. So, I mean, Jeff, one of the big questions that I think is coming up now is sort of a cascading mental health problem. Some of this having to do with people 
literally not being able to get mental health meds that they needed and also just the depression and PTSD of going through this. Well, I think, you know, as, a, as someone who lived uh, from a distance through Katrina, as, as being a native New Orleanian, I know the effects <laughs> uh, of, you know, environmental disaster on, on, look, my family was doing just fine in New Orleans and came out of it the other end doing just fine, but it was emotionally very traumatic for a lot of reasons. In this case, what we're what we're hearing from people and what we're seeing is, look, if we can't go back to a, just a basic functioning of life, if we're a month out and we're st- still talking basic needs, food, water, and electricity, uh, then 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 you know we got to get before we go to if I go to work if I have a job I got to go to the gas station to get gas to fill the generator so that when I can come home I can function. If we're still in emergency mode, we can't get to normal. We can't do, and then then it then even once you're at normal, it's hard enough to pay attention to your own mental health needs or your own physical needs. So they're they're it, it the cat we're stuck. They're stuck in many ways at this almost phase one of recovery. And before, until you get past that, you can't start to really recover. And the problem is phase one itself is shaky. For example, generators are a hideously inefficient way to power anything for any length of time. You need a lot of diesel fuel to mm. get a little done with a generator compared to other ways of powering things. So they're going to start running. I mean, diesel, I think, is already running down a little bit, the actual diesel availability in Puerto Rico. That's, I mean, many of the things that should be sort of step-by-step step moving upwards are not necessarily moving upwards. Is two steps forward, one step back, three steps forward, two steps back. You know, start running out of diesel and you don't, you still haven't figured out what comes after generators. You've got another set of problems here. I, you know, Ryan, one thing that I do is I, I'm going for long walks is I just uh, started thinking about how I would solve these problems. And of course, given my incredible mind, I'm able to solve most of the big problems of the world, you know, in about a four or five mile walk. Um, so I've been thinking a lot about solar down in Puerto Rico. Uh, Puerto Rico has a lot of sun. So it seems like it probably would work pretty well there. And of course, it turns out I'm not the only person thinking about that. Richard Branson, who uh, sat through the storm uh, in another, on another Caribbean island, and Elon Musk are are talking uh, about doing stuff. Well, Musk is doing more stuff than talking right now. He's shipping these uh, power wall batteries to Puerto Rico. Uh, these are sort of smaller kind of power pack kinds of things where you could uh, connect something to solar. But you saw a solar farm there. And despite all the great ideas that I come up with on my long walks, uh, there are some problems there too, right? Right. So we were, again, on that eastern part of the island where the hurricane first touched down um, with winds that were almost at 200 miles per hour. So, you know, there's not much that can stand that that wind power, even if it's metal. <laughs> we saw, you know, giant metal structures warped by the wind, and that included this this solar farm. Um, uh, it was uh, owned, the uh, the land um, at one point was owned by um, the, the man who's showing us around that part on hell. Um, and he showed us that the solar farm was, was basically torn apart by the hurricane. Um, probably could be re- rebuilt, but, you know, um, the durability is something that when uh, people like Elon Musk come in, We'll probably have to consider, um, considering you know hurricane uh, durability. One thing that I came ac- came away from the trip was, um, I think very often, certainly as reporters, very often we look um, for people who are responsible for fixing a problem or responsible for creating it because it helps us sort of, in theory, address it uh, in the future. Um, th- and and there there may there's probably a lot of blame to go around, both for failing infrastructure in Puerto Rico and for failing recovery. Uh, but when you're in a place that is so universally struck by something, by something so massive, uh, 
the notion that w- the notion that um, that there's any one organization or any five organizations that bear the blame that that, that had 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 they really just been doing their thing mm-hmm. that this wouldn't have happened. Uh, you go there and you just realize that this is just, this is what happens sometimes, and it's it is so impressive. And I don't mean that in a flattering way. It, the power of this storm was exceptional to see. I, I do think that you know. I mean, once again, I'm just going for walks in Connecticut thinking about this. But I mean, even even to Ryan's point, it's an argument for microgrids and for more for smaller, more resilient kinds of power. Um, one of the problems I think Puerto Rico is having is kind of. We imposed a very traditional power grid onto this uh, island. Mm-hmm. I do think it's kind of interesting as they kind of the counter kind of gets set back to zero on a lot of this stuff. They there's a lot of incentive to experiment. For, for example, today I've been reading about um, uh, a company that basically puts cell towers on balloons, and they they are flying hot air balloons around, uh, trying to, and they're working with AT and T down there, trying to use that to connect people. I mean, it's obviously easier to get a balloon in the air than it is to rebuild uh, a cell tower. So um, about a minute left, Jeff Cohen. Um, you know, I mean, you sort of said it a lot of different ways, but I mean, you know, there are people, uh, one of them may even be in the White House, who, who say, well, you know, there's going to be some time where we just have to shut off the tap uh, to Puerto Rico. We can't just, you know, we can keep FEMA there forever. I don't know. Is there a way that you can convey the level of need that you saw there? Yeah, sure. Um, well, there's a couple of needs. One, people wanted to know that their stories were being told, and that's why we went, and certainly to the interior. They wanted to make sure that we left San Juan, which is why we did that every day. Um but when you meet people who say, you know what, if, you know, I don't, one guy, he's 96 years old. He says, I don't need the lights to go to sleep. Mm-hmm. Electricity is not that important to me. Water's really important. And some people, like uh, Robert Cotto, he's a former Hartford Board of Education member. His grandmother, we met her, she'd really like it to stop raining in her bedroom mm-hmm. a month later because uh, it's flooding and she has to sw- sweep out her house every day and it's causing her, her respiratory problems. These are still very emergent needs. People still need water. People still need food, uh, and it is it is island wide. Right. We can probably throw access to medical care in there too. There's throw it in. the people who can't get their meds um, uh, with already diagnosed problems. All right. So you've been listening to and will be listening to um, the insights of uh, Ace Newsman Jeff Cohen and Ryan Karen King, photojournalist at WNPR and the New England News Collaborative. Uh, their reporting has been great so far. You can find it at wnpr.org. It's going to be on the air in the coming week or two. Uh, in addition. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Special thanks to Ryan, Jeff, and Amanda Fish. Part of Bill Curry was played by Kevin Costner. On tomorrow's show, Colin and Stephen Schwartz talk about the revised revival of the play Rags and his life in musical theater. And now, back to Colin. So one of the things we like to do on this uh, on the Monday episode here of The Scramble is maybe tell you about a story that you haven't been paying quite so much attention to because there's so many things going on. Um, there's a group of records related to the assassination of John F. Kennedy uh, that are probably about to be disclosed. Uh, in fact, almost inevitably about to be disclosed. Here to explain this is Philip Sheenan, former Washington correspondent for The New York Times and best-selling author of two books most recently, A Cruel and Shocking Act, The Secret History of the Kennedy Assassination. 
assassination. Uh, Phil Sheenan, thanks for joining us. Colin, thank you. So um, to begin with, I mean, there has been a tweet from President Trump about his willingness to uh, to release these uh, records. In a way, it's not even really up to him, right? This whole process was set in motion back in the 1990s. Tell us about that. There's a 1992 law that was passed in the wake of Oliver Stone's movie JFK, which raised a million conspiracy theories about the assassination. And under this law, uh, within 25 years, everything in the government's files about the Kennedy assassination has to be made public by the 25th deadline, which is this coming Thursday. So everything was going to be released unless the president of the United States stops it. Right. He has to be able to stop it. To do that, probably some agency or agencies within uh, the federal government would have to make a compelling case. In other words, the burdens on the government to say, well, here's the reason why we we really can't let this particular piece of information go. So are such cases being made to the best of your knowledge? Yeah, to, to my understanding, at least two agencies, and I suspect it's the FBI and the CIA, are making those appeals. And I think they're probably making them very aggressively this week. The other um, organization or government entity that's involved is something called the AARB. It's not the people who start giving you bus discounts and stuff like that when you uh, reach your 60s. It's somebody else. Uh, tell us, who's on the AARB? What, what is this entity? Well, as a result of this 1992 law, the government set up a special review board led by a federal judge. And their mission was to declassify just as much as they could in the 1990s. And this review board was in existence for several years. And it did force the release of literally millions of pages of documents about the assassination in the 1990s. What we're talking about now is several thousand documents that have been held back all these years because they apparently refer to national security issues or foreign policy issues. But under that 25-year deadline, everything must be released in full by this Thursday unless Donald Trump decides otherwise. So we're talking about maybe 3,000 documents, tens of thousands of pages uh, in those documents. Um, Are there what Donald Rumsfeld would call known unknowns? In other words, are there things that someone like you knows is are described somehow in these documents. You just don't know what, what the actual description is or, or what the actual content would be, but you, you kind of know what they treat of. We have a sort of basic bare-bones index of what's in there, and a lot of it is really interesting. A lot of it refers to what I've always considered the, 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 the secret chapter of the Kennedy assassination story, which involves this strange trip that Lee Harvey Oswald takes to Mexico City just several weeks before the assassination. And we know that a lot of these documents come out of Mexico City, come out of the CIA station in Mexico City from this time period. Right. So we have uh, the putative assassin um, who is somehow a person of interest to the CIA and maybe other government agencies before the assassination. That's one of the reasons that our antennae go up about this? Absolutely. You know, one one thing I think a lot of people don't realize who, even people who studied the, the Kennedy assassination closely, is that Lee Harvey Oswald, who had once tried to defect to the Soviet Union, uh, is under aggressive surveillance by both the FBI and the CIA in the months before the assassination. When Oswald makes this Mexico City trip, we know from previously declassified files, he's under aggressive surveillance by the CIA station there. So the question's always been, what did the CIA station in Mexico know in real time, weeks before the assassination, and is it possible they bungled intelligence that could have prevented the assassination? Right. So, and, and that's, you know, one of my rules, and I bet it's one of your rules, given where you've worked and what you've looked at over the years is 
assume incompetence when you're talking about the government. Don't assume conspiracy. So, I mean, and then maybe there are, there actually are real conspiracies. There are things that, that governments, including the American government, does and do and has done that do amount to conspiracies. But quite frequently, what they're trying to cover up is that they screwed up, right? That here's this guy who turned out to be just fabulously dangerous, and they didn't understand how dangerous he was. Well, it's, it's just amazing to discover that on this Mexico City trip business, Oswald is actually meeting. You know, he's a, he's a, he's a publicly declared Marxist. Mm-hmm. Um, he's previously tried to defect to the Soviet Union. He's a Marine with rifle training. He shows up in Mexico City at the Cuban embassy and the Soviet embassy. He actually meets with a KGB assassinations expert in Mexico City. Um, and the CIA knows a lot of that in September and October 1963. Wouldn't you think that would raise a red alert about the danger this young man might pose? All right, so let's uh, role play here for a second. I'll be um, CIA director uh, Mike Pompeo, and you be Phil Sheenan. That'll be easy, uh, easier acting for you. Uh, so I say, Phil, this is Mike talking. What's what's the upside to this? I and mean, the downside to it is we'd be compromising, you know, uh, some intelligence information which necessarily has to remain secret. That's the nature of intelligence. You know, transparency and intelligence don't walk hand in hand. They walk away from each other. You can't have a spy network if you're just constantly uh, coughing up or vomiting up uh, information to the public. What would you say back to Mike? Well, I'd say, you know, I, I understand the logic of the argument. 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, that some of these documents might expose CIA tradecraft or operations or informants or agents who might be in danger if their identity was exposed. But 54 years later, uh, is anybody still alive? Is there anything from that era to still protect? Um, and especially when we're trying to tamp down, consp- we're trying to let people believe in their government, let people believe the government's telling them the truth when we have a long record that the government in the past has not told us the truth about the murder of our own president. Right. So there's one upside is the one that you just described, which is transparency is good. It feels good. It, it is, um, it's a necessity of democracy, ultimately, to understand what, in fact, the government's doing. Is there another upside? Uh, I mean, I don't know. I've been um, reading, actually listening to on Audible, uh, that fairly recent um, book about Kim Philby, uh, where, so that's another very old story where pretty much everybody's dead. Um, but it's very interesting uh, at the level of transparency. It's also just interesting in terms of understanding, say, how somebody is suborned by a foreign intelligence agency. I mean, it might, it's probably useful information. Do you think there's actual useful information in these files where you would maybe even understand and even as even now, as we're very interested in how Russia, as opposed to the Soviet Union, operates, um, would we maybe learn something that would would help us? Well, I, you know, I think from I guess I call myself an historian these days. I mean, just for the sake of history, to be able to tamp down some of the wilder conspiracy theories would be a valuable thing. Um, and in fact, you know, this is a, a critical turning point in the nation's history in world history, and we've never been able to fully understand it. And, you know, government incompetence is always something worth exposing, and that clearly is what went on in the months and years after the Kennedy uh, assassination, if only to encourage governments not to try to cover up this sort of information in the future. You know, those earlier tranches of documents, um, the uh, huge, huge, massive uh, amounts of documents that have been leveraged out into the sunlight by the AARB, my understanding is 
that they're pretty heavily redacted at times too, right? Are, are they clear enough so that a person can look at them uh, and, and in all cases have some idea what's going on? I mean, I think the vast majority of them uh, have been released in full. There, there are a lot, you know, there are thousands, I mean, again, millions of pages of documents were released in the 1990s. And I'll tell you, I don't think anybody, any journalist, any historian's ever really gone over all of those documents. It would just be physically impossible. Uh, and there are a lot of redactions, but there's also a lot of fascinating information that people have overlooked just because of the bulk of it. And I must admit, I'm concerned that the bulk of the information that's about to land, it may be so overwhelming that people just throw up their hands and assume they'll never be able to get to the bottom of any of this. Well, that's sort of one of the lessons that goes back to 1963, 64, 65, right? That, you know, we came out of World War II with all this new technology for understanding stuff, for processing information, for getting to the bottom of things, you know, chromatography and mass spectrography and stuff like that. And and then we were confronted with this incredible mystery, which, you know, for the sanity of the country, we really needed to understand it. And we needed to have a consensus understanding of how our president was killed. Um, and, and it didn't happen... I always think because there was too much information, right? If you have if you have a hundred different workable hypotheses, you have no workable hypothesis. That one of the painful lessons of this has been sometimes getting a lot more information doesn't help. Well, except in this case, it's a situation where a lot of information was just basic information was withheld that would have resolved so many of these theories that have spun wildly all these years. You know, if the CIA and the FBI had just fessed up in 1964 to the Warren Commission that, yes, we had this guy on our radar screen. Yes, we knew he was talking about killing the president. Uh, and yes, we, we failed to act on that information in time. Um, I think the people would have accepted the incompetence argument and let the country move on. Instead, we've been left with 50 years of conspiracy theories, 50 years of suspicion that the government won't tell us the truth about the most basic facts about the murder of a president. You know, I've been reading for a completely different reason uh, recently a book about this called Covering the Body by Barbie Zelizer, which is more about how this particular um, unresolved set of, set of questions undermined our belief in all kinds of authority, journalistic authority, government authority, it kind of did create the environment, Phil, that you just described. And, and you know, here in 2017, you do kind of wonder whether, I mean, we have a president who not only has trafficked in JFK conspiracy theories vis-a-vis Ted Cruz's father, uh, but, you know, came up with this outlandish notion that President Obama was not born in the United States. I mean, we have somebody sitting in the White House now who shops this stuff around. We have people People who think vaccines are, are unsafe rather than safe. I mean, how much of this do you trace back to this time where we needed this very important answer about the most momentous event imaginable and we couldn't get it? You know, I actually trace everything back to that event. I think that was the event in my lifetime uh, that really changed the minds of Americans. Uh, they really became convinced that they just couldn't trust their government to tell them the truth. Um, you know, the, the opinion polls from the time showed that, that that decision was made by the public, that the idea that they weren't being told the truth very quickly after the assassination, uh, very quickly after the Warren Commission report. And, you know, what follows after that? The Vietnam War, Watergate, Iran-Contra, um, uh, you know, we've lived in, a, in, a, in an era of scandals in which the public is convinced it's not told the truth. And public cynicism, as we both, I think we would agree, is about as high, at a high level as we've ever, as we've ever seen. And, and you sort of wonder whether there can be 
be um, any kind of restoration of trust. I mean, for example, the commission on 9-11, that report's pretty good. I could pick it apart. I could say some things, identify some things that were not successfully handled by it. But by and large, you know, it's a stronger piece of research and investigation than I think we would agree the Warren Commission is. Um, on the other hand, people don't believe it. I mean, you look at the polling on it you know, for the last 16 years or whatever it's been, people feel like there's all kinds of stuff that's been withheld from them. And you sort of wonder, can we ever get back to any kind of consensus about truth? You know, I think the, the polling suggests, though, that a lot more people are willing to accept the official story of 9-11 than are willing to accept the official story of the Kennedy assassination. And that does have something to do with the fact that the 9-11 Commission uh, was much more aggressive. It was much more skeptical that it was being told the full truth. Though, you know, my first book was about the 9-11 yeah. Commission, and I'm very critical of the 9-11 Commission, because what the 9-11 Commission ducked entirely was any personal accountability. Right. Lots of people made terrible mistakes. They Again, it's like Kennedy. They bungled the intelligence that could have prevented this terrible thing from happening. But not one person uh, was punished as a result of the bungling of 9-11, when in fact a fair number of people were punished after uh, Kennedy. There were a lot of people at the FBI who found their careers ended because of their uh, their mistakes before the assassination. Uh, i got one more question for our guest, and our guest is uh, Philip Sheenan, former Washington correspondent for the New York Times and best-selling author of two books. You just heard about one. The other one is A Cruel and Shocking Act, The Secret History of the Kennedy Assassination. Is there something, Phil, that you're looking for? I mean, do you have a particular thing that you want to know that could conceivably come out of this final release of documents? Well, everything for me goes back to what happened in Mexico City, because it's very clear to me that the CIA and the FBI never wanted to get to the bottom of it because it might expose this bungling we've been talking about. Because it, there, we know from the, this index that a lot of these secret files that are supposed to be released this week involve Mexico City, involve the CIA station in Mexico City from this time period. And I think we may learn a lot more about how much more the CIA and the FBI knew about Oswald before the assassination. Phil Sheenan, thanks so much for your time. And also, we got to go. It's the end of our show. Uh, thanks again to Betsy Kaplan for pulling the whole thing together. We'll be back tomorrow with a very different kind of experience. I'll be down in New Haven uh, with Stephen Schwartz, the creator of many musicals, including uh, Wicked and Godspell, and, uh, and most recently, Rags at the Goodspeed. Uh, so we'll be there for that. Uh, thanks for listening today, and join us tomorrow. I dreamed that I could somehow comprehend that someone shot him in the face. John Kennedy died. Oh, the day John Kennedy died.